Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Ushering in New Standards of Care on HER2 Positive and HER2 Low MBC, is jointly provided by Axis Medical Education and Q-Synthesis and is supported by an independent educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's Dr. Reshma Matani. Hello, and welcome to this educational activity on HER2 positive and HER2 low metastatic breast cancer, focusing on antibody drug conjugates. My name is Dr. Reshma Matani, and I'm Chief of Breast Medical Oncology at Miami Cancer Institute, Baptist Health, South Florida. First, a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. So as we start, I'll just point out that HER2-positive breast cancer is one of our greatest success stories in oncology. It's been nearly 40 years since we've identified the amplification of the HER2 gene is associated with an aggressive phenotype and an increased risk of recurrence and death with a median survival of about two to three years, a very difficult type of breast cancer to treat. And over the ensuing many years that followed, we've made significant progress in our understanding of molecular mechanisms and the underlying pathogenesis of HER2-positive disease. And this has generated several targeted therapy options to combat this poor prognosis disease. In fact, it's the development of several targeted agents that has significantly contributed to the declining death rate for metastatic breast cancer from 1989 to 2020. Deaths per year from breast cancer decreased 42% due to advances in early detection, as well as better treatments, including HER2 targeted therapies. This slide shows the currently clinically validated and FDA approved methods for HER2 testing for overexpression, and those include immunohistochemistry and gene amplification by fluorescence in situ hybridization and chromogenic in situ hybridization. It's important to recognize that the presence of HER2 amplification determines a patient's eligibility for anti-HER2 targeted therapy, and because HER2 test results inform treatment decisions, the need for accurate testing is paramount. IHC expression is a continuous variable, IHC zero, which means less than or equal to 10% staining, and IHC three plus, which denotes circumferential membrane staining that's complete, intense, and in greater than 10% of tumor cells, with one plus and two plus being in between that continuum. On the bottom part of the slide, you see in situ hybridization techniques, including FISH and KISH, or chromogenic in situ hybridization. These techniques look to identify gene amplification. The 2018 ASCO CAP guidelines are the latest iteration of the guidelines that are intended to help us identify patients that may benefit from HER2-targeted approaches. As I alluded to a moment ago, HER2 testing by IHC is a continuous variable, 3-plus, referring to circumferential membrane staining that's complete, intense, and in greater than 10% of tumor cells. For IHC-0 tumors, this refers to no staining being observed or membrane staining that's faint or barely perceptible and in less than or equal to 10% of tumor cells. 
there is a recommendation to proceed to in situ hybridization testing, reflex testing in tumors that are considered equivocal or two plus for IHC testing to adjudicate results. In terms of patients who do require in situ hybridization analysis, we look at the HER2 to CEP17 ratio and the HER2 copy number to put them in one of five groups. And in the latest iteration of the ASCO-CAP guidelines, this focused on what to do in these less common results, group two, three, and four, where additional workup is required. Fortunately, these results are an issue in less than 5% of cases, but I would say these rare cases do account for a large majority of the confusion when it comes to HER2 testing results. Additional workup is required in these situations and the guidelines, I would refer you to the guidelines for the additional workup that's required. And then on the far right and far left of this slide, you see the patients that are clearly in group one being ish positive based on ratio and copy number, and those in group five that are clearly negative with a ratio of less than two and a copy number of less than four. And then more recently, we've developed a new nomenclature in breast cancer based on some data that I'll be reviewing with you shortly, HER2 low breast cancer. And so what do we mean by HER2 low? Again, I showed you this slide a moment ago where patients that are HER2 positive based on IHC staining 3 plus are clearly identified. And then those that have less than 10% or no staining being HER2 negative. But this group in the middle, these patients that have tumors that are 1 plus or two plus and then require ish testing for confirmation and those are negative, those tumors would now be called HER2 low. Of course, if the ish testing on a two plus tumor reveals that the tumor is HER2 positive for gene amplification, then those tumors are considered HER2 positive. So as we look at this new definition of HER2 low, again, IHC 1 plus or 2 plus and FISH negative, what is the prevalence here in terms of our patients that have breast cancer? Overall, those with metastatic breast cancer, approximately 50% of the total would be considered HER2 low. And as broken down in terms of the hormone receptor positive cases, about two-thirds would be considered HER2 low, and about a third of triple negative breast cancer patients would be reclassified as having HER2 low disease. So now let's talk a bit about the journey that we've been on with the treatment of HER2 positive breast cancer and where we started and what progress we've made. This slide illustrates the pivotal study that was published in the New England Journal back in 2001 by Slayman et al. It was a phase three study looking at the use of chemotherapy in combination with trastuzumab versus chemotherapy alone for patients with HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer. The time to disease progression was longer, objective response rate was higher, and one-year survival was longer compared with chemotherapy alone with the addition of trastuzumab. And we also identified that it was better to use upfront trastuzumab plus chemotherapy as opposed to sequential administration. And based on these results, the FDA approved trastuzumab for first-line therapy in HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. And the journey then began in terms of 
additional improvements that we've made on some of these efficacy data. And in that regard, you see this timeline of FDA approvals for several other agents that have come afterwards, including tyrosine kinase inhibitors like lapatinib, neratinib, and more recently tocatinib, monoclonal antibodies such as pertuzumab, and then antibody drug conjugates, which we'll be spending quite a bit of time talking about in the context of this program today including TDM1 and trastuzumab duroxtecan. So definitely a steady progress that has been made in the treatment of HER2-positive disease, contributing to the significant gains that we've made in survival for our patients. This slide shows the NCCN guidelines for treatment for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. In the first line, the standard treatment is pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and ataxane-based chemotherapy, either docetaxel or paclitaxel. Second line, our preferred regimen based on NCCN guidelines is TDXD or trastuzumab duroxtecan, with TDM1 being another recommended regimen. And then in the third line and beyond, we see a variety of choices, including the tocatinib, trastuzumab, and capecitabine regimen, with a caveat that this therapy could be considered in the second line, especially in patients that have CNS metastases based on the FDA approval of that triplet combination. Beyond that, we have several other options, including chemotherapy in combination with trastuzumab, other tyrosine kinase inhibitors such as neratinib in combination with capecitabine, and the new monoclonal antibody, margin tuximab as well. In terms of our first-line data, the Cleopatra trial really established the standard for that first-line recommendation of trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and taxane-based chemotherapy. Here you see overall survival in patients at the end of study of this pivotal trial with a median follow-up of 100 months. The addition of pertuzumab to the backbone of trastuzumab and ataxane, as demonstrated in this study, was associated with dramatic improvements in both progression-free survival and overall survival. The end-of-study analysis of the Cleopatra trial of pertuzumab plus trastuzumab in chemotherapy found that 37% of patients were still alive at eight years versus 23% in the control arm. Median overall survival was 57.1 months in the pertuzumab arm and 40.8 months in the placebo arm, an absolute difference of 16.3 months favoring the pertuzumab arm. For some patients, the use of chemotherapy may not be appropriate based on concerns regarding tolerance or due to comorbid conditions. And particularly in those patients with triple positive breast cancer, there is the thought of perhaps omitting chemotherapy in favor of endocrine therapy up front. So there is some support to this approach available based on the results of this trial, the Pertain study, which was a first-line triple positive study with the aim of evaluating the benefit of the addition of pertuzumab to the backbone of an aromatase inhibitor, endocrine therapy, and trastuzumab. It should be noted that induction IV docetaxel every three weeks or paclitaxel every week could be administered for 18 to 24 weeks at the investigator's discretion, and this was decided before but given after random assignment. 
the primary endpoint was progression-free survival and patients were stratified by whether they received induction chemotherapy and their time since adjuvant hormonal therapy. These results were recently updated and with a median follow-up of now more than six years at the final analysis, the PFS benefit of adding pertuzumab to trastuzumab and an aromatase inhibitor was maintained. A potentially enhanced treatment effect was observed by the addition of pertuzumab and trastuzumab plus an AI in patients who did not receive induction chemotherapy after randomization, and that's what's shown on the right-hand part of this slide. Not shown is the fact that there were no new safety concerns at the final analysis. So certainly some data to support this approach, but our standard treatment would still be chemotherapy with ataxane plus trastuzumab and pertuzumab in the majority of our patients. For many years, TDM1, the antibody drug conjugate, was our standard second-line treatment, and this was based on the Amelia randomized phase three study of lapatinib and capecitabine versus TDM1 for her two positive metastatic breast cancer with progression on trastuzumab and ataxane. At that time, lapatinib and capecitabine was the standard second-line therapy, and in a head-to-head -head study comparing that combination with TDM1, we saw an improvement of about six months in median overall survival with the use of TDM1 as compared to lapatinib and capecitabine. And then in the TERESA trial, which was a randomized phase three study looking at TDM1 versus treatment of physician's choice in patients that had received more than or equal to two prior therapies in the metastatic setting, including trastuzumab. Similarly, we saw an overall survival benefit with the use of TDM1. And then on the scene came newer novel antibody drug conjugates, and trastuzumab deruxtecan is one of these newer agents. Here you see the structure of this novel ADC. These drugs are highly potent in that they and clever design of a way to deliver chemotherapy directly to the cancer cells. Here you see the attributes of TDXD as compared to TDM1, the antibody drug conjugate that we had been using routinely prior. The antibody in both compounds is targeting HER2. The payload is different. It TDXD, that payload is a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor as opposed to a tubulin inhibitor for TDM1. The DAR or the drug to antibody ratio is much higher with TDXD. 7 to 8 as compared to 3.5 with TDM1. And most importantly, we see this potent bystander effect with TDXD being able to target cells that are expressing some HER2 or so-called HER2 low, which we'll talk about in detail a bit more later in the presentation. And this is linked to that membrane permeability of this agent as compared to TDM1 where we do not see this membrane permeability. So as I mentioned, TDM1 had been our standard second-line therapy for many years until this study was presented now almost two years ago at ESMO, where we saw a head-to-head -head comparison of TDXD versus TDM1 in patients with HER2-positive unresectable or metastatic breast cancer who had received prior treatment with trastuzumab and ataxane. Of note, patients who had brain mets were permitted to enroll on 
on this trial, but it was required that the brain metastases were clinically stable and treated, not progressive brain mets. The primary endpoint in this important study was progression-free survival. Secondary endpoints included overall survival, overall response rate, duration of response, and safety. In the table here, you see patient characteristics broken down by both treatments. Patients had a median age of about 54. Almost all of them were 3-plus by IHC. There were about 10% that were 2-plus and ish amplified with a good performance status. Again, patients with brain mets, they were permitted on as long as they were stable and treated. They accounted for about 20% of patients enrolled. Not surprisingly, these patients had a heavy burden of visceral disease, and the majority of these patients, about half actually, had received this therapy as second-line treatment having received one line in the prior setting of metastatic disease. And then the other 50% were treated beyond that. All patients had received prior trastuzumab and about two-thirds prior pertuzumab. So what did we see? We saw very impressive results in this head-to-head -head study looking at these two potent ADCs in comparison. When initially presented, the median PFS was 6.8 months in the TDM1 arm compared to not reached initially in the TDXD arm and the 12-month PFS rates being drastically different as well. These results were highly statistically significant. In the forest plot, a consistent PFS benefit was seen across patient sub groups. And again, when initially presented, overall survival data were not mature. The secondary endpoint of overall response rate broken down by complete response, partial response, stable disease, and DCR rate as well in the table on the right. Again, very potent activity in the TDXD arm with 16% of patients being able to achieve a complete response. This is hot off the presses at San Antonio this year. These data were updated, and now we have a median duration of study follow-up of about 26 to 28 months. Median PFS is now 28.8 months in the TDXD arm compared to 6.8 months. This was highly statistically significant, and median overall survival is now significant as well, and grade three or worse treatment emergent adverse events about 56% in the TDXD arm versus 52% with a 15% adjudicated drug-related interstitial lung disease or pneumonitis rate. Again, this is all grade. We'll talk about toxicity a bit later. Fortunately, none of these events were grade 5 events. Our previous study that we had been very impressed with this agent was a non-randomized phase two study. This was what led to accelerated approval of this potent ADC, the Destiny Bresto 1 trial. This non-randomized phase two study looked to identify an appropriate dose, and these were in patients that had largely been resistant or refractory to TDM1, a few that were intolerant. This trial had previously reported and had shown a really remarkable high confirmed overall response rate of almost 61%, including some complete responses in a group of patients that were quite heavily pretreated. 
median prior lines of cancer therapy six. And this waterfall plot made an indelible impression in everyone's mind, the potent activity of this agent with a confirmed response rate of about 61%. And our additional data with this agent was presented again, hot off the presses from San Antonio. This was the confirmatory phase three study, the Destiny Bresto 2 trial. Again, now our standard of care has changed in that we're using TDXD in the second line. So the applicability of these data is somewhat questionable in terms of the fact that I think most of our patients will have already received TDXD in the second line, but certainly these are important data to continue to lend support to utilize TDXD in the patients that have not seen it yet and have perhaps already received treatment with TDM1. These patients had archived sample HER2 positive centrally confirmed disease and were randomized two to one to TDXD versus treatment of physician's choice of trastuzumab and capecitabine or lapatinib and capecitabine. Median follow-up was about 20 months and the median progression-free survival 17.8 months versus 6.9 months in the TPC arm, hazard ratio 0.3589, highly statistically significant. Certainly not surprising to see this remarkable efficacy in a larger randomized study, again, building on the Destiny Bresto 1 non-randomized single arm phase 2 study. Median OS is statistically significant and a much higher response rate as well. So as I mentioned, at ESMO in 2021, the DBO3 data were first presented, and that's why this slide says the post-ESMO 2021 approach to therapy. What hadn't changed is our first-line treatment with trastuzumab, ataxane, and pertuzumab based on the Cleopatra data. And in the second line, what really did change is the jump of TDXD into the second line. For the majority of patients, as we saw the remarkable efficacy of this highly potent ADC, a caveat being in patients who have active CNS disease where Tocatinib has been studied, especially in those with active brain metastases. The combination of tocatinib, trastuzumab, and capecitabine could be considered in the second line and beyond based on the FDA-approved label of that triplet combination. And then in the third line, you see that for those patients who had not received TDM1, it could be considered or the tocatinib regimen. Of course, an unanswered question here is what will the activity of TDM1 be post-TDXD? We certainly still need to do a lot more to identify mechanisms of resistance and biomarkers of response to understand if there would be efficacy noted there. And then, of course, as we move further through this algorithm, we still have other targeted therapies, including the newly approved FC-engineered monoclonal antibody margituximab, along with the neratinib-capecitabine combination and other chemotherapy agents given in combination with trastuzumab. Now, let's shift gears a bit. We talked about at the beginning of this presentation the definition of HER2-positive and HER2-low. And as we move into the discussion regarding HER2-low, 
it's informative to look at the evolution of HER2 lobe between the primary and metastatic breast cancer specimens. At least in this analysis, it looked that HER2 low was enriched in metastatic breast cancer compared with the primary. We see when tested on the primary, 42% in this series were HER2 low as opposed to 50% in the metastatic site. Late relapsers also had a higher relative increase compared with early relapsers. So certainly at San Antonio, we heard a lot of debate regarding this question, does HER2 low affect prognosis? And that was the subject of this current analysis where the objective of the analysis was to characterize this new breast cancer subtype. The investigators compared the clinical and molecular characteristics of a HER2 low breast cancer and HER2 zero breast cancer, including response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy and prognosis. So here in this analysis, patients with HER2 low tumors had significantly longer survival than in those with HER2 zero tumors. Three-year invasive disease-free survival was 83.4% versus 76.1% and overall survival 91.6% versus 85.8%. And they concluded that HER2 low tumors had a specific biology and showed a difference in response to therapy and prognosis, which is particularly relevant in therapy-resistant hormone receptor negative tumors. And I think we still have quite a bit to learn about this new subtype. The study that really informed our utilization of the antibody drug conjugate trastuzumab deruxtecan in HER2-low disease was the subject of the Destiny Bresto 4 trial. This was a very important pivotal study, which subsequently led to the approval of trastuzumab deruxtecan in HER2-low disease, remarkably changing the nomenclature of all of HER2-positive and HER2-negative metastatic disease. So in this trial, HER2-low was defined as 1-plus or 2-plus and ish negative, unresectable and or metastatic disease, with patients having been required to receive at least one prior line of chemo in the metastatic setting, or could enroll if their disease had recurred less than or equal to six months after completion of adjuvant therapy. For those who were ER positive, HER2 low, and just to be clear, the majority of patients that were enrolled on this trial were hormone receptor positive, HER2 low, they were required to have received at least one line of therapy with endocrine therapy if these patients had hormone receptor positive disease. And they were randomized two to one to TDXD versus treatment of physician's choice including capecitabine, aribulin, gemcitabine, or ataxane. And the primary endpoint was PFS in the hormone receptor positive group with key secondary endpoints being PFS in all patients. So meaning including that smaller subset that were ER negative or too low and overall survival in the HR positive and all patients. The patient characteristics broken down here, median age was in mid-50s, HER2 status, almost 60% were 1+, plus. the others 40% were 2+, plus and ish negative. Again, as I mentioned a moment ago, the vast majority of these patients were ER positive with a good performance status, and not surprisingly, many of these patients had received several targeted therapies that are shown below 
and had significant burden of visceral disease in about two-thirds of these patients, with the median prior lines of chemo being one, so many of these patients were treated in the second line, and about 70% had received prior CDK4-6 inhibitor therapy. Here are the efficacy data from this pivotal study where we see the PFS and the hormone receptor positive patients. TDXD median PFS was 10.1 months as compared to the TPC arm of 5.4 months. That's hazard ratio of 0.51, highly statistically significant. And then including those ER negative HER2 low patients, the PFS in all patients, a very consistent hazard ratio of 0.5, again, statistically significant, with the median PFS being 9.9 months versus 5.1 months. And the benefit was similar across subgroups according to baseline characteristics and stratification factors, which is not shown on this slide. In terms of the endpoint of overall survival, again, the overall survival benefit in the ER positive patients about six months and including all patients, including the ER negative HER2 low, and the confirmed overall responses being much higher in the TDXD arm in both the HR positive and HR negative patients. In this analysis, there was also an analysis of these smaller numbers of patients that were included that were ER negative or HR negative, hormone receptor negative. The randomization was two to one. So there were about 60 patients total, 40 and about 20 in the other group that had had TDXD as compared to TPC. And we see, again, very consistent hazard ratios, but certainly much smaller numbers here, but pointing to a clear signal of activity even in the ER-negative HER2-low patients. And on the basis of this important study in August of last year, trastuzumab deruxtecan was FDA-approved for adult patients with unresectable or metastatic HER2-low breast cancer in those patients that have received a prior chemotherapy in the metastatic setting or develop disease recurrence during or within six months of completing adjuvant chemotherapy. This approval was based on the DBO4 trial, which I've just gone through with you. As a reminder, the dosing is 5.4 milligrams per kilogram as an IV infusion once every three weeks, 21-day cycle, until disease progression or intolerable toxicity. So we also have another antibody drug conjugate, sazituzumab govotecan. This is a highly potent ADC that is currently already approved for triple negative breast cancer patients and has shown activity in a heavily pretreated population of HR positive HER2 negative patients based on the phase three tropics two trial. So here we see patients that are hormone receptor positive HER2 negative not specifically HER2 low, but our prior definition of HER2 negative with progressive disease after at least one line of prior endocrine therapy, taxane, and a CDK4-6 inhibitor in any setting. Notice here that patients had to have at least two, but no more than four prior lines of chemo for metastatic disease. So as compared to the DBO4 data that we just went through, this patient population was more heavily pretreated. They were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to the ADC sazituzumab govotecan 
versus physician's choice treatment, including the usual drugs that we would consider giving in the setting as shown here, capecitabine, venerelbine, gemcitabine, or aribulin. Again, these patients were treated until progressive disease or unacceptable toxicity, and the primary endpoint was PFS. The patient characteristics table is summarized. Most patients were in their mid-50s, very heavy disease burden in terms of visceral metastases, 95%, with 84 to 87% having liver metastases, many of these patients having received prior chemotherapy, and the endocrine therapy, again, the patients would have received as prior CDK4-6 inhibitor as shown here and was broken down by their duration of response to that therapy, with the median prior chemo regimens being three. So most of these patients being treated quite later on with this agent. And what we did see in this trial was a benefit in terms of median PFS. The hazard ratio was 0.66, 5.5 months in the SG arm compared to four months in the treatment of physician's choice arm, highly statistically significant, resulting in a 34% reduction in the risk of progression or death. And the results in terms of PFS were consistent across all subgroups as detailed on the bottom. Initially, we did not have overall survival, but subsequently updated results from last year at second interim analysis did show about a three-month improvement in overall survival, which I would say is quite clinically meaningful as these patients are heavily pretreated and certainly require additional treatment options that are efficacious. So now this trial, there was an ad hoc analysis looking at the benefit of sazituzumab govotecan in patients with HR positive, HER2 negative, advanced breast cancer broken down by HER2 low status. So recall these patients did not require HER2 low specifically to go on the trial as opposed to the DBO4 data where those patients exclusively had HER2 low disease. Here, some of these patients were HER2 IHC0 and others were HER2 low, and the response rates were broken down by HER2 low and IHC0 as compared to that intent-to-treat population. And so this ad hoc analysis basically showed that there were consistent results in patients with HER2 low disease, again, giving us some assurance that regardless of HER2 low status, this therapy could be considered. Now we see the results of Destiny Breast 04 and Tropics 2 looking specifically at this HER2 low ad hoc analysis that I just went through with you in the Tropics 2 trial, looking at that as well with the patients in the DB04 trial that were exclusively HER2 low. And this is not meant to be comparative because recall that there were patients that were more heavily pretreated in the Tropics 2 trial. So when looking at the magnitude of benefit of these two highly potent ADCs, I would say that we can't draw any conclusions that one is better than the other, knowing that the populations that they were studied in were different, but certainly good news for our patients in terms of options for further therapy. Now, looking back at 
this agent trust Tuzumab Deruxtecan. We talked about the activity in HER2 positive disease. I've shown you some data that led to the approval of this agent for HER2 low disease. This is an important study, the DAISY trial, because it was a phase two study with biomarker analyses with three cohorts. One was the clearly HER2 positive patients, cohort two were the HER2 low patients, and cohort three were actually patients that would not have been eligible for DBO4 because these were completely IHC0, so not HER2 low. And this was tested centrally post-enrollment central HER2 status of metastatic baseline biopsy determined which of the final cohorts. And what we saw remarkably in this study was that this agent, trastuzumab deruxtecan, in this small group had activity almost 30% in even those patients that were HER2 zero. That's that cohort three. So certainly thought-provoking, and I would just remind you that as we reviewed earlier the definition of IHC0, it doesn't mean no HER2 staining, it just means less than 10%. So if this is based on some HER2 expression, or if there are issues with concordance and testing, it could certainly be related to that. But remember, in this situation, these patients were clearly centrally confirmed. So a clear signal that there may be some activity of this agent even in IHC0, which is certainly remarkable to see, but needs to be further proven. What about immunotherapy for HER2-positive breast cancer? Well, this is a nice summary slide that has illustrated some of the attempts that have been made to look at the utilization of various immunotherapy agents, including pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, durvalumab, and avelumab. And the summary take-home message from all of these studies is that there overall has been low anti-tumor efficacy in an unselected, heavily pretreated patient population with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, certainly perhaps a signal in those that are pdl one positive. I'll just point out that this is a study run through the NRG B004, which was looking to identify whether there was a benefit of adding immunotherapy, in this case, atezolizumab, to our standard backbone of THP, meaning that Cleopatra regimen that we've already gone through. This trial accrual ended early. Patients were unblinded. There were some safety issues of concern here. So certainly the story about whether or not there is a role for immunotherapy in her two positive breast cancer remains not clearly answered at this point. In terms of novel strategies for her two positive breast cancer, there are other agents under investigation, including novel antibody drug conjugates, other tyrosine kinase inhibitors, bispecific antibodies that are able to simultaneously bind to two different antigens or epitopes on the same antigen, enforce that connection between the immune system and the tumor cells. And then, of course, as I mentioned, I think the story regarding immunotherapy and vaccines is still not fully answered and is certainly an area of interest moving forward. This slide summarizes select ADCs that are in development for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, and you see many of these are just drugs without a name as yet, just letters and numbers, and they're certainly in various phases of clinical development. 
with different drug to antibody ratios, payloads, antibodies, with the target all being HER2 here. One of these was investigated in a randomized phase three study called the TULIP trial with SID-985. This was a therapy that was evaluated in patients that had received two or more prior therapies in the metastatic setting or TDM1 for metastatic disease. Patients with brain metastases were permitted to enroll if they were treated. And the randomization was to SID-985 versus treatment of physician's choice. And what we did see was about a two-month improvement in progression-free survival, hazard ratio of 0.64, statistically significant, with a p-value of 0.002, favoring the utilization of SID-985. Other antibody drug conjugates under investigation include RC48. This is an agent that has MMAE as a payload. The drug to antibody ratio is four to one. There is a bystander effect noted with this agent, and there is a conditional approval in China for platinum refractory HER2 positive advanced urothelial cancer, and the FDA has granted this as breakthrough therapy for urothelial cancer in 2020. In terms of efficacy in breast cancer patients, the patients that were studied with this agent in phase one, in terms of their characteristics summarized on the left, and some promising activity noted in both HER2 positive as well as HER2 low metastatic breast cancer patients, again, in phase one. Another agent to watch would be the bispecific HER2 ADC ZW49. This is an agent that has a proprietary orostatin toxin covalently linked to this protease cleavable valine citrulline linker. The DAR is 2, and this agent has been studied in ongoing phase 1 trials, including dose escalation and expansion, with some issues with keratitis being noted. And as we talk about toxicities in a bit, we'll recognize that this is something that we may need to be watchful of for some of these ADCs, ocular toxicity. Other trials that may inform what we do in the future for HER2-positive breast cancer patients, the DESTINY BREAST09 trial is looking to move TDXD plus or minus pertuzumab up to even an earlier line setting. These are patients that have metastatic disease with a disease-free interval of greater than six months from the last chemo or HER2-targeted therapy in the early stage setting and are being treated in the first line setting except endocrine therapy is permitted up front. And randomization is one to one to one to TDXD plus pertuzumab or the placebo for pertuzumab versus the standard of the Cleopatra regimen of taxane, trastuzumab, pertuzumab. The primary and secondary endpoints are shown here. So this is an ongoing trial. Another ongoing study that is one to watch would be the HER2-CLIMB-4 trial in which the antibody drug conjugate TDXD, which we've been talking about in detail today, is being combined with the tyrosine kinase inhibitor to catnib in patients with or without brain mets, and the study schema is shown here. Finally, Destiny Breast 06 is another study that is an important one to watch because this potentially could move TDXD even earlier in the advanced or metastatic HR-positive breast cancer patients after progression on endocrine therapy. This would be a first-line chemotherapy study in the metastatic setting. Of note, the low HER2 is defined as greater than zero but less than one plus, so this ultra-low HER2 randomization is TDXD 
versus investigator's choice chemotherapy with the chemo options being capecitabine or ataxane. So now let's switch gears a bit and talk about adverse event management of HER2 antibody drug conjugates. First, we'll review some toxicities from established therapies, the monoclonal antibodies, trastuzumab and pertuzumab. We're all well aware at this point of the potential for cardiac dysfunction, although it is generally predictable, and we've identified risk factors and some preventative strategies. This is a toxicity that can occur with any HER2-targeted therapy in addition to some infusion-related reactions. With pertuzumab particularly, we do see some diarrhea at times. This is generally exacerbated by the concomitant use of chemotherapy, but can be largely well-handled with antidiarrheal medication. Uncommonly, we see rash and topical immunosuppression and UV protection is recommended. This slide illustrates the various components of antibody drug conjugates. These are novel agents that are quite effective in bringing chemotherapy payloads directly to tumor cells. They consist of numerous elements, including the monoclonal antibody, a conjugated drug, and a stable linker. These are thought to be of somewhat modular design where that monoclonal antibody is selective for an antigen with a high copy number on the target tumor cell, and the cytotoxic drug is attached to the antibody via a linker, and that linker has to be selectively releasing the drug into the target cell, but long-term stable in the circulation to hopefully prevent off-target toxicities. The chemotherapy payload itself has to be highly potent, and this is the ability of these agents to put chemotherapy payloads on to these antibodies that would not be safe to administer in free circulation is thought to be linked to the remarkable activity of these agents. As we look at how these agents work, you'll start with the top of the slide with the number one, where it says tumor-specific targeting. So the ADC localizes to the tumor, and it binds the target receptor antigen on the tumor cell surface, and then is internalized. And the receptor antigen and the ADC are both internalized as a complex where then that drug is released. The agent is enzymatically degraded within the lysosomes, and the chemotherapy drug is released, it binds to the intracellular target, and you have cancer cell death. That's ADC-mediated of the antigen-expressing cell. What's really unique is there are certain agents of which trastuzumab deruxtecan is one, where we see this very important bystander effect that is linked to the membrane permeability of the drug being released and taken up by neighboring cancer cells that have some of the target. And this is the purported mechanism for the efficacy of trastuzumab deruxtecan in patients with her two low tumors, so some of that target being available. With the availability of ADCs, we now recognize that there are on-target toxicities as well as off-target toxicities. So on-target would be considered cytotoxic effect, 
on non-cancer cells that express the target antigen, and the mechanism of action is likely related to or may be the same as the effect on the cancer cells, whereas that off-target toxicity is when you have toxicity that is related to cytotoxic effects on non-cancer cells that don't express the antigen or have very minimal expression of the antigen, and a few potential mechanisms have been described in terms of the off-target toxicities. As we've discussed, our two main ADCs in breast cancer, especially in HER2-positive breast cancer specifically, are TDM1 and TDXD. And as a reminder, you see the approval time periods and the shift of TDXD to the second-line setting as recently as 2022. The chemotherapy payloads being different with these two agents, and again, that bystander anti-tumor effect being really very much linked to TDXD and not seen with TDM1. As we look at the toxicities with TDM1, we again review the pivotal AMELIA trial in which this agent was compared against what had been our standard lipatinib and capecitabine, focusing on grade 3 toxicities of 41% were noted grade 3 or higher in the TDM1 arm. The majority of these were related to thrombocytopenia, some liver function abnormality, largely very well-tolerated agent. Here we see that it can also cause mild nausea, but mainly, as I mentioned a moment ago, thrombocytopenia, transaminitis. Peripheral neuropathy can be seen, but it's generally quite mild, and you see more of the common toxicities highlighted on the left on the last bullet point. And you see some of the management suggestions in terms of dose modifications, slowing or interrupting the infusion for infusion-related reactions, dose modifications for thrombocytopenia and for neurotoxicity. And of course, for patients that could become pregnant, we have to advise them that it's not safe to do so. There is a risk and a need for contraception due to embryo-fetal toxicity. There are some special considerations with TDM1 in terms of hepatotoxicity. It's recommended to permanently discontinue treatment in patients with serum transaminases three times the upper limit of normal and a concomitant total bile of two times or higher greater than the upper limit of normal. There have also been some rare cases of nodular regenerative hyperplasia. Two of these five cases of NRH were observed in the AMELIA trial and two were observed in the Catherine trial. There was a fatality reported in the past, so this is something that we have to be very mindful of and diagnosis can only be confirmed by histopathology, so this should be kept on your radar and of course patients should permanently discontinue. As a reminder, the DBO3 trial, which did pit these two highly active ADCs head-to-head TDM1 versus TDXD, we've previously reviewed the PFS and OS data and the response rate information. But in terms of toxicity, there is an adverse interest of special, adverse event of special interest with TDXD. That's namely ILD pneumonitis, and in earlier studies, there were some fatalities. Thankfully, in this trial, there were no grade 5 ILD events, whether that's related to this patient population that's being treated earlier in the treatment course. Remember, about 50% of these patients were receiving therapy in the second line. It's unclear, but in any case, that's good news in this trial. Mainly, other issues that are much more common include nausea, some vomiting 
GI toxicities mainly and some blood count issues that can largely be well managed with the use of supportive treatments. As I mentioned, due to the fatalities that have been seen in the past with this agent, we do have to be very mindful of common signs of ILD. And if any of the symptoms below arise, experts recommend contacting a healthcare team. So a dry or hacking cough that does not produce phlegm, shortness of breath, weakness. A lot of these, as you'll notice, are very common side effects that we see with our anti-cancer therapies. So having this on your radar is really important and asking pointed questions about changes in pulmonary symptoms is really very important. It is a diagnosis of exclusion with a variable presentation. And so, of course, we need to engage with our other colleagues, such as our pulmonary colleagues, our ID colleagues, to rule out other causes like infection and to make sure that we're putting patients through appropriate diagnostic workup, including high-resolution imaging, blood culturing, and bronchoscopy when indicated. In the earlier studies with this agent, I mentioned there were some grade 5 events. This is shown here from the Destiny Breast 01 trial. And again, there was a hint that perhaps some of this kind of leveled off at the 12-month mark, but certainly I think it's too early to make any decisions about when to feel comforted that this could not happen. And again, we really need to make sure that this is a side effect that's on our radar because of the variable clinical course, we do need to remember that all patients who have any signs or symptoms should be thoroughly investigated. And even for asymptomatic grade one, consider steroids and withhold until the patients recover to grade zero toxicities. If it takes less than 28 days, you can resume the same dose. But if it takes longer than 28 days, a dose reduction is required. What's really unique about this agent is with the presence of symptomatic ILD, grade two, we're actually supposed to discontinue the drug. And that's unlike any other therapy that we're used to using in breast cancer. I think it just speaks to the fact that with the fatalities that were noted, we should err on the side of caution and certainly discontinue when patients are symptomatic. So this is just a CT scan that shows us that typical interstitial lung disease pattern that can be seen with trastuzumab, deruxtecan, and you see that lacy ground glass opacity pattern. I've already gone through some of this, but it's a nice algorithm here to take you through the monitoring, the confirmation stage, and the dose interruption and discontinuation. This algorithm should be closely followed, especially when it comes to rechallenging patients and consideration of dose reductions and resumption of therapy at appropriate doses or perhaps not at all. Again, there's a black box warning, permanently discontinue trastuzumab deruxtecan in all patients with grade two or higher ILD pneumonitis. And we need to advise our patients of the risk and the need to report immediately any symptoms. As I mentioned earlier, this is a therapy that's mainly associated with GI toxicities that are pretty well managed, and the ILD fortunately does not occur that frequently. So moving on to ocular toxicities, this is a new toxicity that as medical oncologists will have to learn to handle and hopefully have the help of our colleagues, ophthalmologists and optometrists, because as you see in this table, this is a toxicity that's been reported with quite a few different antibody drug conjugates for other tumor types, focusing on the agents that we're 
discussing today, trastuzumab deruxtecan and trastuzumab emtansine, there have been some cases of ocular toxicity as well. So the summary in terms of some of the other therapies, we've talked about the HER2-directed antibodies and the cardiac monitoring infusion reactions. We haven't talked much. This program is more focused on ADCs, but the toxicities with regards to small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitors include diarrhea and some skin toxicity, and we've discussed the ADC toxicities. I would just like to really point out the importance of the team approach when it comes to allowing our patients to safely continue on these highly efficacious therapies. Many experts make up the interprofessional team and members of the team depend on the patient's needs. You see, of course, our medical oncologists, our advanced practice providers, of course, our other colleagues such as surgeons and radiologists, our nutrition colleagues, our physiotherapists. It's really certainly a team approach to make sure that our patients are getting the benefit of these highly directed or highly efficacious therapies. Members must collaborate on patient education and treatment decisions. And of course, at the center of all this is the patient who we need to keep in mind. And so finally, I'll end with a few key takeaways. With the availability of several targeted agents, we've made considerable progress in treating what was once considered one of the most aggressive subtypes of breast cancer, namely HER2-positive breast cancer. The nomenclature for breast cancer has remarkably changed based on the approval of a novel antibody drug conjugate, namely trastuzumab deruxtecan for her to low breast cancer. Appropriate management and recognition of toxicities is an important part of being able to ensure that our patients get the benefit from these highly efficacious agents. And finally, understanding mechanisms of resistance and biomarkers for response will be critical going forward, especially as some of our most efficacious novel therapies are moved into the earlier stage setting, identifying how to optimally sequence the therapies that we have in the metastatic setting will be of utmost importance. So thank you for your attention. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Axis Medical Education and Q-Synthesis and is supported by an independent educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.